Before we get started in this episode, a quick announcement. As you know, I'm very passionate about acceptance and commitment therapy, and I also run a busy practice in Canberra. We're currently looking for psychologists who are registered in Australia to join our team, who are also passionate about learning about ACT. We provide supervision on a group and individual basis and training around ACT. So if this is you, if you're interested, please express your interest at strategicpsychology.com.au forward slash careers. Look forward to hearing from you. And now back to this episode. Okay, life can be crazy. You're feeling like you're sinking. Just trying to find a meaning. It's time for better thinking. Yeah, better thinking. Time to tune in. Let's go. Welcome back to Better Thinking. My name's Nesh Nikolic, and my guest today is Kiralee Smelt. She is a clinical psychologist who has worked with children and teens for more than 25 years. She is the author of three books about young people and also the director of Developing Minds, a child and adolescent psychology clinic in Adelaide and Calm Kids Central, an online psychoeducation program for children with big feelings. Kiralee really shines a light on not only working with children from a transdiagnostic way, but also the evidence base around how children can be best engaged and parents in providing best practice therapy for future improvements in mental health. Really passionate conversation, particularly towards the end of this interview, and really lovely to hear from someone who has a wealth of experience and is advocating for best practices in Australia for children and adolescents. Big thank you, Kira Lee, for coming on to the show today. I appreciate you taking the opportunity to, to, to come on, and I think there's a, a bit of a shared uh, interest in the transdiagnostic world. So it's always very lovely to uh, speak with a colleague, you know, around that and obviously other other areas too. It's a pleasure. It's lovely to be here. Tell me a little bit about, uh, uh, maybe a little bit about yourself and, 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 and obviously, you know, uh, what's brought you into psychology, obviously the transdiagnostic world. I know that we spoke about, you know, ACT before starting this recording as well and, 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 um, yeah, maybe we can kind of start there and uh, yeah, progress from there. Sure. So I graduated from uni. Hmm, I was thinking as you were talking, Ash, I should have memorised that. I have behind me actually a, a certificate which says 20 years, which I got back in 2016. So wherever that leads us to a, around about 27 years, my maths isn't good, um, of working in clinical psych and started working with both adults and young people, but fairly quickly decided that working with kids and teens was the way to go. So I have been working in that field um, specifically um, probably for the last sort of 22, 23 years. And that's been in a mixture of community settings, private practice settings um, and uh, some government settings and also have um, in the last few years also been working in tertiary settings as well where I get to do some um, teaching and training. So at the moment, most of my time is taken up by working in a, a private practice called Developing Minds. So we have about 23 child and adolescent psychologists here who see um, lots of uh, wonderful families each week. Um, 
over a couple of different sites. And that's working with kids aged from about four to 18. And they might come in with all kinds of challenges and struggles and goals, um, which span lots of different diagnostic categories. Uh, so I get to work with them and also supervise um, the psychologists in our practice. And then one day a week, I work at the University of South Australia, where I support, uh, supervise and teach provisional psychologists in the master's program there. And then another big part of what I do is working on our online program where we have a child mental health support program for four to 11 year olds. So the primary age group where we're trying to um, give resources to both practitioners and also to parents around helping children increase their emotional health literacy and learn how to manage uh, various problems. So that, that program is not for parents specifically, it's actually for children because we know there's quite a few online parenting support and caregiver programs, but the programs for children themselves are a bit thinner on the ground. So that's where that program fits. So I think that's a bit of a summary of the um, crazy juggling of work that we all do. Um, and that's sort of what I spend my days doing. Busy schedule, I see. It's a busy schedule. Um, it's it's mostly good. There aren't too many days that I'm looking to quit and become a florist, just just occasionally. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me a little bit about, if you don't mind, the uh, the uh, uh, the university teaching part. I'm I'm interested to find out about how are we doing our teaching in, at a university level? You know, is it still very DSM strong? Are we looking at it from, you know, different lenses? Is it broadening from there? What sort of modalities are we teaching? I know that obviously CBT sure. is still, still, you know, at the forefront and, 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 and should be, you know, it, it's got yeah. great evidence base and the like, yes. but I'd love to hear from someone who's, who's in that space. Sure. Well, I'm only there a half a day a week. So um, I, I can only comment on what I see and only at uh, the one university, but sure. um, yes, CBT is probably the, the dominant framework that is taught. However, there's definitely exposure to lots of different modalities in terms of understanding what they are. Um, in terms of the DSM heaviness, um, although DSM um, frameworks are definitely an important part of um, teaching, it's uh, absolutely understood that they have limited usefulness. So there is, um, I think that new graduates today, can you just excuse me for a second? Sorry, Nesh, I should have put that on silent. No, no, that, 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 that's now. fine. Um, I definitely think that um, most, well, my my opinion would be that most universities have um, a really heavy uh, focus in clinical masters on understanding both the benefits and the limitations of a medical model or a DSM model. So um, it's certainly not a rigid, you need to diagnose every person that comes in and use, um, you know, a, a kind of single diagnostic approach. Yeah, I've heard recently, and, and obviously we have some some provisional psychs on our team as well, and they've certainly come out with that great understanding where yeah. you know there there is much more of a focus on you know, the process and understanding you know, the client's story and and yeah. you know the the uh, factors that are contributing to why someone's feeling that way, rather than trying to come up with a specific diagnosis. Right, and, and it's so lovely because. Um, 
you know, certainly not taking away anything from from, from my training, um, or maybe I was misreading things when, when when I went through. But it seemed quite heavy in in, in trying to uh, understand uh, someone's presentation and 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 put a label to it, or at least maybe that's how you understand how to put labels. And mm. and there were always fringe cases that we looked at, but uh, you know maybe younger eyes I couldn't see that, but uh, it seems like <laughs> the young ones coming through. Um, you know, really bright, um, you know, real, real, really um, uh, well developed in whether it be case formulation or, or treatment planning. I've been really impressed. Yes. I look, I think the kind of rigid um, focus on um, diagnostics and uh, using, um, you know, protocol, you know, single protocols is really been in the research world rather than in the clinical world i think that yeah. clinicians have always <laughs> from the time they ste- either stepped out of university or even within the tertiary system understood that life is not that simple um and so i think um yeah, I you know it, obviously I only can come from the universities that I've been involved with, but I think that they're generally pretty sensible um, and have been for a long time in understanding that uh, transdiagnostic, transmodal kind of individualized way of treating people um, and particularly children um, is really the way that we have to, to and what we do. Well, it's always surprised me, and, and and maybe I'm a bit sort of repetitive in this sort of space, but it's, it's always surprised me how uh, uh, we we know that if we had ten clinicians speak to the one single client, they would all be able to describe the client's story and experience and what's occurred. But there could be quite significant variation in a diagnosis, you know, whether it's adjustment disorder, whether it's a mm-hmm. you know a PTSD, whether it's mm-hmm you know, some sort of social phobia, all sorts of strange things can come out of, you know, the variation of that because it's very difficult to to package this together. And we know we do confirmation bias because we are human. Um, so if we're looking for something, you know, we, we can kind of see that. I mean, I've been in my own trap going, everyone's fitting the, the um, adjustment disorder because it's, you know, it's an all catch type of space when in actual fact, it's irrelevant. Um, you know, I've just got to put something down on a insurance form as to what it is, and, and in there is where we, you know, I think tend to tend to struggle when when we're being for, not forced but asked to, um, and it's hard mm-hmm. to push against the system and say we don't do that at our practice. Mm-hmm. We don't give these diagnoses mm-hmm. because it can have serious ramifications for for um, you know whether someone gets support or not. Mm, yes. Um, And there's some particular um, challenges with children in diagnostic categories. So, for example, um, being diagnosed with autism is often an avenue to being provided with NDIS funding for support. Um, Being diagnosed with ADHD may open up some additional avenues of support at school. Not always, of course, Um, but uh, sometimes for children um, having an, a dyslexia diagnosis, for example, may open up accommodations. So there, there, there is, as there have always been, some advantages um, to, to diagnostic categories as well as some of the disadvantages that we naturally as clinicians sometimes want to push back against. So it's balancing using the framework when it's helpful but being aware of the risks. 
how do you balance those things in terms of seeing that there's a great need, but sometimes, you know, there might be some question marks whether we well, see I think a presentation that's that 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 you know meets the full criteria. How do you do it? Well, I think it's been um, using our collaborative, open, conversational skills that we want to be using about therapy um, with the topic of uh, a diagnosis when we're talking with families and talking just openly about the fact that this is how these are how disorders are diagnosed with all of their strengths and failings with that process. And here are the risks and benefits of diagnosis and asking families to tell us what suits them and what would be helpful for them rather than coming in as an expert with kind of a hard line of either you need a diagnosis or you don't need one. Mm-hmm. And how, how have you found uh, that that's changed over the years? Has that, has that been something that uh, has been the way that you've worked and, and obviously your team as well, uh, you know, over many years or has it kind of evolved and changed? I think there's been a societal shift towards um, being aware of diagnoses, like particularly, for example, um, diagnoses like autism or ADHD, but even, um, you know, anxiety disorders and depressive disorders. We definitely have more families now who have greater awareness, understanding of what what those diagnoses mean. And we will have families seeking those out from us more frequently than we did, say, 15 years ago. Um, and partly, again, that's to do with, you know, funding and doors that open with them. But partly, it's, I think, just the general mental health literacy of our society, um, which, which, of course, brings lots of wonderful benefits in de-shaming and, um, uh, you know, not placing kind of uh, inappropriate blame, um, but it also unfortunately means that we have this diagnosis creep that happens with all diagnoses. <laughs> um, and so we have increasing numbers of people falling into a category that maybe doesn't fit them, um, or at least being interested in it in diagnosis that maybe doesn't fit them. Mm. It's so interesting, you know, talking with yourself and, and, and other colleagues. I, I know I always get really nervous and, and um, maybe that's just a sign of the times, but nervous about, you know, uh, yeah, what constitutes a diagnosis and how it's looked at, particularly in some of these more challenging spaces like, you know, ADHD, you know, where uh, obviously there are lots of things that can be mm-hmm. contributors to mm-hmm. why a child mm-hmm. um, is is behaving in a particular way mm-hmm. or not engaging in times when we would like them to engage you know, uh, particularly, you know, uh, uh, around, you know, things that can often seem to be very reasonable and normal, particularly with uh, certain character traits, you know, like we, 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 we know, uh, you know, quite, quite uh, strongly that there are great variation in people uh, and there's great strength in being able to switch topics and and in actual fact be you know whether it's spontaneous or mm-hmm. um be be empowered by juggling multiple things simultaneously particularly in this changing world mm-hmm. and then also you know great problems that can come along with that if you're asked to sustain attention on a boring task that's that, that that's hard for you know the best of us yes um but it's, it's it's always challenging you know i'm always kind of worried like you know who's listening you know is uh, uh, you know, am I going to get picked up on this? You know, uh, 
uh, you know, maybe that's just my own fears, but uh, I know that I feel just personally naturally sensitive about how do I talk about this, particularly when it's going to go public. Yes. Have you felt that as well sometimes? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I've been really grateful for the advent over the last 10 years or so of understandings of neurodiversity and that uh, social movement and framework that has helped us understand um, differences and the, uh, I guess, context-specific benefits or disadvantages of those differences rather than using a purely biological or medical model which sees symptoms as, uh, you know, diseases and problems. So I think we have more language to talk about this now than we used to. Um, so I, uh, yeah, look, I, I think maybe I feel less nervous perhaps now that we have an understanding and I think that that society is also gradually taking on that understanding as well, that we don't just have to be stuck in a biological medical model but that we can draw upon that as well as thinking about social models of disability and so on. But it's certainly a tough, a tough area at times to work in um, and, yeah, as I said, I think... The only solutions that I've personally found to be helpful are those around being authentic and open with families about my views and listening to their views and to invite them to let me know how they would like to manage the, the issue of diagnosis. Can I ask you, a, I mean, potentially a harder question um, in terms of uh, what, what what's your standing on diagnoses are they uh, is it something that you see as a medical model uh, that these things exist or is it best that we hold that as a professional means of communicating with one another or describing something for someone but it's better explained by you know functional analysis of the context and what someone presents with that describes what we would more than likely uh, usually feel if we were in the same position how how do you sort of see see that space Could you rephrase that question for me Nash I'm thinking uh, let, 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 me, let me let me try and be <laughs> a bit more direct um, do diagnoses exist? Well, I certainly think patterns of behaviours and feelings exist. Um, and so how we describe those um, then becomes a decision um, that we have to make as both professionals and families. But there's no doubt that there are people with a collection of behaviors and symptoms and experiences that are very different from somebody else's so in that respect yes absolutely there is some permanency or some longevity to those experiences that can kind of be grouped together so uh you know if you take adhd for example there's no doubt in my mind that some of the families that i deal with are supporting children who are at the 98th percentile in terms of their tendency to be active or to struggle with concentration for instance um so yes in the world that is a very real experience it absolutely exists mm -hmm. they're the tail end 
experiences where yes. we, we can see. Yeah, um, I suppose the great challenge is is how often are we seeing the tail end, and and um, you know, how is that understood? Because for me, it's always like yeah, that kind of understanding of if we look at um, uh, the extremes, it's very easy to see ASD when it's in the very severe uh, range because anybody can observe that someone that is untrained can go out and say Mm -hmm. i can see the severity in this child and that they're going to need uh, ongoing support and they won't be able to achieve independent living Uh, and then there is obviously what we used to call you know uh, asperger's where there's lots of functional capacity and i know that we kind of try and do you know mild and moderate and, and so on but it becomes harder and harder you know it blurs the lines the further we go uh, into that middle space and you know that always poses a question you know sometimes it's easy to go out and say wow someone's been you know diagnosed with schizophrenia for example you know and it seems to be long-standing and and it's you know they're quite often in an active episode um, and it seems like there is something a bit more organic and maybe there is a medical model uh, start to show up in that space. Uh, but it's a lot harder to kind of you know, see that where someone may have had a manic episode with some depressive types of you know moments and now we kind of label them with bipolar uh, when I'm not sure what the dysfunction is when mm-hmm, you know mm-hmm. that might for one person mm-hmm. be an episode, so to speak, of euphoria um, that, you know, they made some poor judgments at the time. So mm. yeah, it's, it, it's hard to grapple with the two spaces because sometimes it's so obvious, but then, you know, like the 98th percentile. Um, and then there's kind of a question mark about how do we do the others? Yeah. I'm not a diagnostician, Nesh, so I tend to leave some of those questions for people who specialize in those areas. But I agree, definitely the gray areas with a slightly sub-threshold are, are harder to manage. You're probably smarter and wiser than me because I, I kind of, you know, want to get into the weeds of that and try and, try and, <laughs> try and figure that out. Um, and there probably isn't a solution. I think, I think you know, Good clinical practice is the solution that 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 uh, we are, you know, well versed and educated in 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 mm. both, you know, understanding it from a DSM, you know, perspective because we need we're working in the modern world, um, uh, and similarly, you know, trying to understand how do you do support and therapy and treatment and what does the evidence base say around you know how how to help people who are presenting in a particular way. Yes, I think that's that's certainly our focus here, and I think one that most clinicians sort of have to grapple with is is regardless of diagnosis, we need to go ahead and think about how do we actually support this child and young person to live more functionally. Hmm. Can you talk me a little bit through? I'm I'm not a uh, child sort of psychologist or even adolescent sort of psychologist. Can you talk me through about uh, how your uh, experiences with you know working with parents and and you know what are the challenges that parents have when they're trying to support their, their children right it's fairly broad but what are the types of you know, presentations that mums and dads come with that that mm-hmm. that you know we can support them with while while obviously working with their with their children too mm-hmm. well the most commonly 
diagnosed if again we're talking about a diagnosis um, the most commonly diagnosed mental health challenge for children in Australia is ADHD and then when you look at presentations at mental health clinics then difficulties related to challenging behavior so that might be children who find it really difficult to cope with instructions who find it difficult to manage their frustration who get really overwhelmed and act in aggressive ways those groups of behaviors challenging behaviors are the most uh, common reason for presentation to mental health clinics in australia but that's shortly um, or closely followed by symptoms related to anxiety so anxiety around being separated from mums or dads or other caregivers anxiety about social situations um, school and learning situations and so on of course they usually are are overlapping. So most children who struggle with challenging behaviours will also have experiences of anxiety and overwhelm, and many children who are anxious will act in challenging ways. Of course, then you have many children who struggle um, with trauma-related symptoms who've been in experiences in their family which have been traumatic for them. Uh, and you also have lots of young people who have difficulties with peer experiences and relationship experiences. Um, they're, the, I guess, the most common challenges that families that we see uh, come along with, and I think that's echoed in lots of other child psychology clinics across Australia. Mm. Has ADHD... Uh been the most diagnosed for some period of time or has that changed with you know recent um, awareness that that has you know made people more and more you know cognizant of of you know mental health um, challenges yeah sure well um We'd have to differentiate between the official diagnoses um, and the um, presentation, I suppose, um, in a way, sure. Nash. So the the official diagnosis diagnosis rate, and you, I'm I'm hoping that I'm correct on this. Don't quote me on this, but I believe it's actually stabilised in recent times. Um, there's more adults being diagnosed with ADHD, but ch- the rate for childhood diagnosis hasn't, um, although it increased some time ago, um, had a bit steadily increased for many years, has sort of levelled off. And I wonder if that's actually partly because um, in terms of services, it's so difficult to actually get into um, a, a psychiatrist or a paediatrician who's willing or able able to diagnose ADHD. Um, But um, yes, in terms of whether the presentation itself is increasing in terms of the families who are needing support, um, we, I suspect that they're there are more families that are coming to see child psychologists or wanting to come and see child psychologists than there ever were. So um, sheer numbers would suggest that there's more of those. That's such a, a profound point for me. I've never thought about how uh, rates might be shown in relation to the number of clinicians that might be available uh, and yeah. that you would hit a ceiling because you just cannot go out and diagnose anymore because we've got a certain amount of clinicians mm-hmm. who are all maxed out seeing their you know, total caseload and they can't see any more and so... There's going to be a ceiling to everything, yeah. right? You know, even though there might be a lot of people who are waiting, uh, yeah. but you can only do that, you know, based on the number of clinicians that that 
you, that that the the system has a value. It can be, yeah. Way. I mean, there is some prevalence data that's collected using community based um, surveys where uh, uh, researchers will diagnose um, or or use diagnostic systems themselves. So they're not actually asking people, "Have you received a diagnosis?" They're actually taking a sample of the population and diagnosing. Um, but of course, that you know that requires pretty expensive research so that's not always done but yeah I think um, I know that certainly there are lots of uh, people in Australia who uh, just simply can't get a diagnosis or an assessment done at the moment because of wait times. Mm. I also wonder how often our human nature gets gets caught up as clinicians how do we you know, behave ourselves where when someone's asking for something, uh, you know, how, how hard do clinicians find it to, to not say yes to maintain their clinical opinion? You know how like in, in you know, scenarios where if one, if a, if, if a client comes in, they say, I already have a report and it says this about me or this about my child, it's, it's so much harder for a clinician to go out and say, I'm going to hold my ground and say I don't agree with that. I wonder even there, and not suggesting that we're not doing a wonderful job and, and that everyone's thinking about the same, you know, uh, uh, way to treat people and, and the like. But I wonder how much how much humanity comes in and, and we struggle with it ourselves yeah. because, you know, even when someone contacts me and says, "Nesh, can you make an appointment?" You know, I'm like, oh, you know going to be hard but i want to say yes i don't yeah. want to so even at that level of making an appointment mm-hmm. let alone you know is there another way i can you know or is there another way you can help me yes um that would be fascinating to, to look at as well you may need to um talk with some of the the uh, clinicians who are involved in those diagnostic services to see how they manage that because i imagine that there is some um pressure but possibly in both directions however um so it'd be interesting to see what they do about that mm-hmm. in in terms of uh, uh the services that that uh, you provide you know when assessment is is made and recommendations are, are provided is that are the recommendations that you provide something that your clinicians then continue to work with that young person are there services that you uh, refer out to is it a combination of both how how do you well, we actually refer that? out for assessment so we're a treatment only service okay So our focus is on therapeutic support for challenging or difficult experiences, behaviours and presentations rather than doing that diagnosis. So we will then be doing a therapeutic assessment with families to think about what are the, um, the most difficult experiences they're having prioritizing those setting goals and then using various treatment approaches to try and see if we can get um, increase in function and reduction of symptoms yeah fantastic this is a nice little segue if i if you don't mind for me to ask about your online uh, program um, i know that you know the more mediums we've got the the the, the, the better particularly with young people being able to you know do things in their own time you know mm-hmm the adoption of of you know all of us you're moving towards you know what we're doing even right now doing doing a you know podcast versus you know 
almost it's like a you know a zoom i suppose you know telehealth type of scenario or for kids to be able to watch videos can you talk me through about your program what it offers and, and how how it was developed and designed and, and and why sure it was probably around about the eight years ago now that we started seeing the increase in referrals we really couldn't keep up with and nor could we refer out to other people who were, well other services that we tried to refer to were also becoming um, at capacity so that's where we started looking at whether there was a low intensity model that we could use for people on waiting lists or um, in between sessions or who weren't able to or willing to come into clinic. Um, it was also partly because um, of the workforce shortages, of course, it meant that our rural and remote families were really finding it difficult to get access to services. So that was the initial prompt, I suppose. And since that time, we've had um, we've been able to develop a whole range of different modules for children. So uh, the program consists itself of around about 30 little modules for kids age 4 to 11 which include things like you know using calm sentences um, when we're frustrated you know developing a busy brain when we're angry you know having friendly conversations and what that might look like understanding our danger checkers and what they do to us being able to relax our body and so on and so on so we each module has a two minute little animated video an interactive game where they have to drag and drop and spin wheels and things just to cement learning a discussion guide that a parent or caregiver will use to ask some questions about what they've learnt, an activity sheet that they would do on paper, and then a monitoring sheet, which is a homework embedded sort of idea about kind of ticking off practice and so on. Um, as, as well as that, we also include a, um, a question centre where parents and caregivers who are supporting their child to use the program can jump on and ask one of our clean psychs a question and we answer them within 48 hours. And then there's also a separate library for parents where they've got some information on uh, a whole range of modules about how they might support children with big feelings and difficult behaviours and, and anxiety and so on. Uh, and so we've had about 5,000 families over the last of eight years use the program. It's funded by a range of different funding bodies. So some people in Australia have access to it for free, depending on what region they live in or whether they have um, various kinds of private health insurers will, will fund it like HCF, for example. Um, and we do some outcome monitoring to see whether it um, has made a difference. And we're quite happy with seeing the, the changes that occur when people use the program. So that's, um, I guess, it, in a, a nutshell. Um, I think what is interesting about the program is that it helps us think about what we're doing in sessions as well. So we've been able to develop modules that um, can be put together I guess, transmodally um, to think about how we do treatment planning. And I find this area really interesting, Nesh, because I think this is how clinicians work. They don't follow manualised protocols. Um, and what they need is, I, I guess, lists of all the different 
treatment kernels that can be useful to be able to then do case formulation to kind of put these together. And so our online program kind of gives all of those kind of different modules that clinicians can then think about picking and choosing from. So while we've been developing this program, Calm Kids Central, it's called, by the way, for families, it's also been helpful in helping us think about, well, how do we treat and support families? And what are the different kinds of things that we might use depending on the symptomatology and the, and the causation of those things? Is that I've just kind of thrown a whole lot of words at you there, Nish. Tell me, what no, can I? No. Look, <laughs> how I, can I dig, dig into that? Look, I tell you what, 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 what strikes me, and and you know, it's just so beautiful as well. Is is to hear the topics and and how that's delivered. Like you know, building a busy brain. You know, the, these are little things that you know it's going to be much more uh, accessible for whether it be the kids, but also the parents, that, that they can use that moving forward. That, yeah. that, that uh, you know, these are concepts that in so many ways, you know, have a metaphor or, or have a little catchphrase attached to it that, that obviously as a psychologist, you know, you could do, you know, 10 sessions on, on well, you know, you could, you could do unlimited sessions on each one and, and, and look at all the nuances, but it starts a conversation. It's really the building blocks of, of, you know, being able to observe, you know, one of, you know, 30, you know, it's probably much more than that. They're, they're just your modules, but I'm, you know, I'm sure there's more, more than, than uh, uh, just those topics in a, a, each module. So it's, it, it's beautiful because it gives a language set and, you know, being, you know, bit of a, a language fan in you know looking at the act model and rft and you know sort of uh, how language represents things and, and so on um you just rattling off that, that, that those modules um just is so elegant and beautiful Thank you, Nish. That's very kind of you. That's what it's like to be a child psychologist. I think it's interesting that um, child psychologists are forced very quickly to have to take a complex concept and think about what's the what's the really the heart of this idea that I need to now explain to this seven-year-old in five words or less. What does it really mean? And how can I make this practical? Because you don't have the luxury of being able to have a 50-minute kind of meandering chat with a, with a seven-year-old. You've got to be on task fast and get to the point. <laughs> so you've got to be pragmatic in what you're doing and you've got to have something that they take away with and do. And so you know, one of the beautiful things about working with our team of child psychologists here is just seeing the creativity and the ways that people do that and I've always said that I think that once you've worked with children for a few years you can work with adults much faster and more effectively because you've had to be able to do things in a way that's much more succinct um, and much more practical than you would do if you've had you know a bit of more time and space to explore ideas. I've always wondered that and obviously raising children myself uh, obviously, the the differences between you know, adults and children is, is immense. But I've always thought about it in the way that you know, with an adult, it's very very challenging because you need to change your mind. You know? So you, you you've got to get things out of the way before you go out and adopt another viewpoint or consider another viewpoint. There's you know, you've got to get your confirmation bias out of the way and so on. 
with children, you know, in 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 you know some instances, there's an opportunity for a child to just make up their mind. You know, so it's almost like you know now we're you know now we're going to play horsey, right? And then we become horses. You just decided I am a horse, right? Um, as we're you know to say, look, you're a horse to an adult. Uh, they they can play it out, but they don't buy in. You know, there's still all these things that are in in, in the yeah. way. So, you know, being succinct uh, allows children to say, okay, that sounds reasonable and right, and, yeah. and I can just start living with that. You know, uh-huh. adopting that viewpoint. Um, you know, which which you know, obviously, you know, lots of parents would 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 benefit from as well because you know that that language and those ideas. You know, we often you know, especially being a busy parent, we often can't even think of those things. And I'm, I'm, I'm a clinician, so you know, and I don't even go there myself, right? I, I'm, I'm not a clinician at home. I'm a dad, right? Yeah. And a tired one of that as well. <laughs> yeah, I think having parents exposed to these ideas. I mean, one of the things that we always want to do for younger children is to have parents and caregivers in the room, um, and also when we are uh, having children watch modules and do activities online we want parents observing watching because what that does is that then does give them the analogies the language the ways to describe ideas that is developmentally appropriate and more likely to be effective for children so although a lot of the modules uh, sorry although a lot of our program is designed for children we know that we're sneakily getting in education and support for parents and caregivers as well so um, that's where often we're, you know we're doing some of the best work is helping families know what to do themselves well, it's very much a systems approach, isn't it? Where if, if if both are involved, there's whether a sh- whether it's a shared terminology or a you know a shared goal, or, or that parents can say, "I can observe my child is doing X, so I can support mm-hmm. in this way." It, it, it's obviously you know a much more laid and and you know, profoundly valuable uh, 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 program. Uh, do, do you mind just quickly jumping into you? You said that you have uh, evaluated um, uh, the the program. What sort of things have you looked at? Um, and obviously, uh, we you know, look. We and- use the pediatric symptom checklist um, and look at pre and post results after four months of using the program. And we have seen significant reductions in in total scores, total distress distress scores. Um, it's unpublished at this stage, and we've got to do some more rigorous research. There's no been no control group. Um, there's lots of, of work that we need to do in doing that, but initially we're see, seeing some encouraging results. But what I am most pleased about is, is that we also have around about a thousand clinicians who've used the program and continue to use the program. And I find that really heartwarming, Nesh, because I know as a child psychologist, when I walk into a room that some of the time you just need a resource. Um, you know, you, you've got a child that you've got to introduce some concepts related to, you know, for example, um, you know, uh, challenging their thoughts and you, you've, You've just got to have some kind of entertaining or at least slightly entertaining visual kind of component activity that you can do. And so just being able to have that there is is helpful. But do you mind if I go back to just a point that you made before about involving parents? Because I just think this is such a 
important topic for us as therapists and figuring out how we do this because the the societal expectation is is that you send your child along to see a psychologist and they um, will try and support that child you might kind of know what's going on but essentially it's a child working with the psychologist and we also know that this is the way better access has been designed that under better access the the deal is is that the child is in the room and you're supposed to be working with the child this is in stark contrast to most of the literature most of the literature says that if you have children particularly those in primary age child your best bet for best outcomes is to be doing work with the parent and you know most of our rcts in in um uh in psychotherapy don't pit one uh one type of treatment against another except there has been quite a lot of work pitting parent treatments against child treatments and what they find is that parent treatments for younger children usually get better outcomes than child treatments so not only do we have that literature we also have all the literature which has our parent work for children with oppositional and difficult behaviors showing good outcomes so we have this whole mountain of research that says we need to work with parents and unfortunately child psychologists across Australia struggling with this because not only do parents not really understand that, our Medicare system doesn't really understand that. And so I continue to be waving the flag and I'm sorry to be a boring kind of, you know, talking about this, but I I just think we have to keep getting that out there. I'm doing lots of advocacy with various politicians at the moment. I know that the APS are working on this um, as well and have been for quite some time, but we really need to continue to lobby and explain that not only are we hamstrung and not able to get good outcomes when we're working with children under better access, we're also potentially damaging Um, many children's relationships with their parents because what happens is you have to have a parent come in with a child, you ask mum or dad or caregiver, can you give me some information about what's going on? Mum or dad, of course, want to present or explain the difficult experiences that they're having with the child. And so time after time, every day, we would have across one of our clinics a parent saying some extremely harsh critical, potentially massively relationship rupturing statements about that child while that child is listening. We also will have adults needing, feeling the need and understandably needing to tell us about traumatic events in that uh, family's life, including family violence, that the child is now sitting here with big ears listening to all about the family violence that's occurred. So it is just heartbreaking that as clinicians, we are not only doing poor work at times because we can't have the parent in the room on their own, but we're actually making things worse for a child under our national mental health system. So um, I I just think it's something I'd really like us all to have uppermost in our mind. Um, And this is particularly important when we're thinking about the fact that Challenging behaviours, oppositional behaviours, most um, common presentation, as I said, into child mental health clinics across Australia, and potentially in terms of health dollars cost and um, long-term disturbances and problems more expensive than any other mental health problem because you might have an adult walk in with a significant serious mental health problem but that 
the years of life that they have left to go, 20 years left than the five-year-olds that walk into our child psychology clinics who've been suspended from school, expelled from three schools, have serious difficulties. They are going to be have 40 years of cost to our health system and we can't treat them effectively because of the way Medicare is set up. Kira Lee, thank you for your extreme passion on, 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 on this topic because it needs to be said. It's absolutely horrendous and absurd that we've got an evidence base which goes out and, and says parents need time with a clinician by themselves. I mean, that is, excuse my language, but bloody obvious. Yeah. Uh, and hence why, you know, parents are desperate to communicate with their psychologists without the child knowing and so on. We've all done it as parents ourselves because we know that there are huge damaging potential problems, uh, as you've noted as well, of doing, you know, trying to say something in the room or you're unable to because now you're speaking in code and the message isn't relayed across and, and you know, other other sort of you know issues are, are formed. And, and as you said, I know the APS have been on this for some time and we do need you know, our government to go out and say, yes, we are going to, you know, uh, not only give children, you know, their 10 consults a year but maybe we give mum and dad you know five consults on top of that so that they can speak mm -hmm. uh, uh, openly and honestly and and that way a clinician can can work with that child mm -hmm. and the parents uh, mm -hmm. uh, and obviously you know combined when, when when needed to give them you know the best care as you say because they've got many years uh, of life ahead and and we know that early intervention uh, mm -hmm. across the board for everything for everything is is yeah. huge yes. right so yeah that's that's where our money needs to go um you know uh, ahead of 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 you know a lot of things and unfortunately this isn't even a money thing this is this this is a, a policy thing we well, just it doesn't actually have to cost more um if i mean no. ideally we would have more sessions but what we need is a flexibility for clinicians to make the decision whether the parent or the child is there now there were two extra sessions announced in the recent budget um or the may 2022 uh, sorry, May 2021 budget, and they were supposed to be coming in next year, but they've been held up, I understand it, by looking at issues to do with consent, because what they wanted to do is to introduce two parent caregiver sessions. So that wasn't just for children under 18, it was for all family members. And so because of that, they introduced tricky and thorny consent issues which has stopped it happening so if anybody's listening and they have the ability to or are willing to go and talk to their local uh, federal member of parliament please just drop them an email to let them know that um this is something that's really urgent and not necessarily more expensive and i think it's important for I think it's important to have, you know for clinicians to have a voice in here and you know speak to 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 their relevant you know uh, minister, but also for mums and dads listening, correct? Uh, you know, or you know, you know, loved ones to, to go right. out and say this That's is right. important and it That's needs right. to be on the agenda. Right. You know, period. Now, in the meantime, although we are very hamstrung, what we still have to do is to work on how we support families to be involved to the extent that we can. And that is the other 
slightly related but slightly separate issues that child psychologists face is that parents are often not aware that what is most helpful for their child is for them to be learning how to respond to, to support support their child. And a lot of the time clinicians don't feel um, able to or find that there's lots of barriers in the way in actually having those really collaborative conversations with parents where we're up front and say, I can't probably fix or even make a huge amount of difference to your child's challenges by just working with them. I need to work with you. What that means is that we're going to need to have, you know, six sessions with you doing five to 10 minutes work a day with your child. That's my understanding of what the evidence suggests will be most helpful. How do you feel about that? You probably came in with a different understanding of how this would work. Tell me about how that fits with your emotional resources, time and ability at the moment. Um, but to be a little bit bolder and more upfront in being able to talk with parents about that, because the reality is, is that if we sit in a room with a seven-year-old and teach them emotional regulation techniques on their own, chances of that making a significant difference for a highly dysregulated kid is probably pretty low. And I think you're right in terms of, you know, talking about being being bold you know i i think we have a responsibility as clinicians to go out and say you know i need to go out and raise what the evidence base says um and and, mm. and, and, and if the evidence base you know with an adult is you know uh we need you to be you know consistent and attend more than mm-hmm. you know three appointments before you finish up uh, because the evidence tells us the more sessions that you have, the more chance you're going to adopt some of these concepts or you know, be able to integrate them for a longer period of time, post 12, 24, 36 months. You know, I need you to just at least inform you yes. that this is what would be um, you know, recommended and most appropriate. It's then up to a person yes. to decide whether they can Absolutely. achieve that or not. But I think we've got to be... You know, at least up front, you know, I would want my doctor to say that to me as well and yes. say, Nish, you should go out and, you know, run for 30 minutes a day and then I can reject that at least. Yes. Um, but at least I can have an opportunity to adopt it, you know. Yes. Um, and then, you know, it can still be done respectfully and thoughtfully and, and you know, obviously professionally and clinically. But I think we've got an obligation to, to, to be bold because I know that sometimes being so client-centred, we can get a bit. Um, too collaborative. Uh, not, not collaborative is probably not the right word. Um, we we can uh, uh, maybe not state it as as thoroughly or, or as directly. Um, you know, even though our our heart and our intent and our clinical knowledge says we, you know, that's exactly where we want to go. Yes, and we leave it till too late to bring that up often. Um, and I think. Um, that then it becomes a more difficult conversation because it can be interpreted as a criticism and an attack of what has been happening. Whereas if we can lead with it up front to talk about what the the treatments that tend to get the best outcomes tend to be like with spacing, with out-of-session activity, with types of work, and then we can say this is what we would expect and, as as you said, get client feedback on that, but do that from the beginning. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, 
beautiful and wonderful to 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 hear and i think have an opportunity to talk about this sort of stuff on a podcast that hopefully others can 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 listen to uh you know i just want to you know thank you immensely i know you know time times of the essence uh but i want to thank you immensely because these are the topics that i think you know we need to talk about uh, so that we can also change psychology you know um now whether it's through policy and talking with with you know the, the, those um you know, medicare and the like our, our, our ministers or even reflect on our own practice and, and say how do i set up you know uh, sessions and expectations you know uh, how do i navigate the tricky world of of diagnoses and, and the like these are all you know fundamental questions and, and and i think psychology is moving rapidly because of these uh you know questions that are being asked that that we're we are wanting psychology to evolve and and we're also saying you know what works and what doesn't and, and you know needing to voice that and, and make that a, more of a reality and and you know for the for the world to see that as well saying ah oh, I know how to meet a child psychologist. It means I'm involved. Um, as a matter of fact, the more I'm involved, the better. It's Absolutely. just that the focus is going to be on my child. And, and you know, I can do countless hours of therapy with my child. And, you know, if we actually drop the word therapy, support and nurturing and uh-huh. kindness and guidance and, and, and modeling is probably the big one, right? Um, there's so much that I can do to, to be my child's parent. Absolutely. How can people find out more about you, uh, your, your 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 clinics, the work that you do, the online program, you know, and and the like? Sure. So the online program is called Calm Kids Central. So you can just go to calmkidscentral.com. If you're a professional, then there'll be a link there to direct you to the professional site. Um, our clinics uh, in South Australia are at developingminds.net.au so you can find us at either place now i hope i don't stumble into something where i've i've, I've read it somewhere else but do you have a couple of books as well that you've do read? yes i do have a couple of books i've got the when life sucks book so i've got the when life sucks for kids which is for primary age kids and the when life sucks for teens so what we need to develop a when life sucks for adults as well <laughs> <laughs> i'll leave that one to you nesh <laughs> <laughs> no big big thank you again and 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 you know in particular for sharing your 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 passion i love hearing you know psychologists who who you know bold enough to kind of you know say this is what's on my mind and 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 you know this is what i believe in you know because that it's refreshing for for all of us and i think it's refreshing for mums and dads as well to, to to hear that we are on their side and sometimes you know it's hard to do our work and you know we, we're trying to do this together as a as a, as a, you know, a unit to, to support young people. So, you know, thank you for, for, for your, you know, incredible insights and, and, um, you know, experience. It's a pleasure, Nash. Thanks for having me. If you enjoyed this podcast, please support it by going to iTunes and putting a review, subscribe, share it via social media and tell others about it. Start a conversation. It's listeners like you that make this able and possible and why we bring in these guests to go out and share their knowledge and resources and just lastly if you are a psychologist and you want to go out and be part of a bigger team develop your experience and get into some exciting work come to strategicpsychology.com.au 
forward slash careers and reach out. I'd love to hear from you.